Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with the extraterrestrial Charles Coulomb. Extraterrestrial. You're always saying that. Your your DNA came and you're primarily human, but... Well, yeah. It's true. We are primarily human in my family. More human than, well, most of the other things that we have. Yeah. It's mostly human. Yeah. Enough to govern appearance. And as far as extraterrestrial goes, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of nerve considering that you're sitting there in a city whose very existence was dependent upon an epic struggle against a UFO invasion fleet. Yes, the Battle of Los Angeles, that's true. Absolutely. And that's not all. Your big talent, the, 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 the headliner of this show, went to college in Roswell, New Mexico. Uh-huh. That's right. And that's not all. You remember Yule Hauser? Right. Yes. Well, he did a show on the Integratron out in the desert. The uh, plans for which were given to Van Tassel by aliens. And out in El Cajon, there's the Unarius Academy of Science, whose founders were in touch with the Space Brothers. Well, UFO I, abductions. I don't believe in UFOs. I don't believe in aliens. I don't believe on life on Mars, and I don't believe on uh, in life in the womb. What? Wait, you don't what? believe in life. You don't <laughs> believe in life in the womb. No, I kid. So basically, what you're telling me is that you're matching. Uh, you're matching the popular you're matching with disbelief the popular acceptance of aliens with your disbelief the popular acceptance of abortion i lost you but yeah sure all right i'll put this another way let's say that i'm one of your ideological opponents i don't believe that the that uh, the, the infant in the womb is a human being but I do believe there are aliens out in outer space. Right. And so you're reversing that. You're saying there are no aliens in outer space, but there are human beings in the womb. Yeah. All right. I can prove you wrong. Okay. Has the Supreme Court ever ruled against the existence of alien life? No. Gotcha but... there, Bunky. Gotcha there. Who Where are the in the moral... Bible did, did it talk about aliens? Where in the Bible? Uh, same place where it talks about the Supreme Court. <laughs> See, I can play this game. No, you can't. I mean, you, you abide by the Supreme Court. I abide by the Bible. Yeah, but the Supreme Court's higher than the Bible. And don't forget, according to the Bible, we're supposed to be ruled by judges. I've heard that ever since I became a monarchist. And we are ruled by judges, and people complain. They always say that in the Bible, Jesus, or not Jesus, but God the Father was annoyed with the people of Israel because they wanted to be ruled by a king instead of judges. In this country, or rather in that country, since I'm overseas, we are ruled by judges. Okay. Well, it's the judges that decided that the, uh, the unborn aren't human. 
Now, mind you, I think that if they suddenly ruled that there is no life in outer space, then life in outer space would cease to exist and would never have existed. But if they rule that it does exist, it will come into being in that in that moment if it didn't exist before. Did they rule that the that the unborn aren't human? Mm-hmm. How? Roe v. Wade. Well, if a if a court rules in favor of the death penalty, does that mean that person isn't human? Uh, no. Well, it doesn't. Isn't it the same thing? No, because the Supreme Court were very careful to point out that they weren't sentencing human beings to death in the womb, but non-humans. Did they really say? Does it really say that? No. <laughs> okay. You're really into exactitude tonight, aren't you? All this flirting with with aliens. Have, have you been sitting in gamma rays or something? You're not usually this exacting. I don't know. I, the craziness. I don't know. There's just so much crazy this week. Um, crazy. Bruce Springsteen says he's going to leave the country. Uh, if I think I think you should go, and I think Melbourne would be a great place for him to live. Totally locked down. I would Even be surprised if somebody dead. started a fund and said, go go regardless, sir. Just get well, out. Well, I'm glad you mentioned this because there'll be more and more of this from various celebrities until the build-up. And I am I think now is the time to make my announcement. Uh-oh. No, I've, I've thought long and hard about this and about what people need. Uh, and, and understand, unlike you, I have no ill will towards celebrities that disagree with me. Okay? Okay. I really do not have any ill will toward them. So, I made this announcement, and I think it's time that everyone accepts it. Here it is. I am happy to announce the establishment of the Coulomb Home for Upset Celebrities, here in quiet Trumau, Austria. Here, in a bucolic setting, celebrities upset by the outcome of the upcoming elections can make good their promises to leave the country if the other side wins. At the Coulomb Home, we provide a safe, warm, and welcoming environment where celebrities can begin to rebuild their shattered psyches. Following the timeless rhythms of the agricultural year, our celebrities will be helped to regain their sense of self-worth through guided meditation, expert counseling, and productive agrarian labor. Satisfied and happy after each fulfilling day, they'll go to sleep knowing they have contributed to the greater good. Births are now births available are just under one million dollars per celebrity. Act now. Your favorite upset celebrity deserves the kind of care that only the Coulomb home can provide. I feel like that solicitation is filled with a bunch of euphemisms. Euphemisms? What are you talking about? I feel like you're trying to run a, a slave plantation filled with celebrities. I cut to the quick. <laughs> I've cut to the quick. Do you really think we'd have Rosie O'Donnell pulling a plow? I think you would take a sick satisfaction out of such a thing. Look, helping people whose careers have forced them to be separated from the earth forcibly, we'd be restoring to them a sense of what it is to be human. And let me tell you something else. It's not an overseer, smart guy. 
It's an occupational therapist. Thank you very much. Plantation, my eye. And, and we would have a completely accredited medical staff on hand. Accredited by who? Well, we've made it this uh, medical school in Grenada. Medical school where? Grenada in the West Indies. They don't charge as much for their accreditations as some other places do. Okay. You know, you sound like you think I'm running some sort of a scam. I'm providing an important service for for celebrities who feel on the surface disenfranchised by political events in our country, but whose anxieties betray much deeper causes. And I want to help these people get to the very heart of what's bothering them. If Jeffrey Epstein had been at the Coulomb home, he never would have gone through what he went through. It seems like a little bit of a leap, no? How's it a leap? I mean, look, this guy had terrible problems of conscience. Why do you think he killed himself? Exactly. Whereas if he'd come to the Coulomb home, by virtue of getting his, his entire life cycle in touch with the agricultural year, by participating in the, in the seasons of the earth, the sowing, planting, plowing, uh, harvesting, reaping, uh, and all of, the, all of the activities connected thereto, he would have been able to resync, in a sense, to reionize his interior life. He would have gotten in touch with the human being he was meant to be. And he probably would still be alive today, I think. Do you know not a single one of our celebrities has suffered any recidivism? What celebrities? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> well, the, uh, the lady that's uh, outside working the hall right now, she was in one of Ed Wood's early films. What's her name? <laughs> Nina. <laughs> okay, Charles. She, she only goes by Nina. And the fact that you, you know, this, by the way, also shows the injustice of calling me extraterrestrial. Would I be involved with something as down to earth as a project of this sort if I was somehow connected to our space brothers? I thought you, before you're trying to prove to everyone that you're connected to our space, space brothers. And now you're dis, and now you're disavowing. I wouldn't say I'm disavowing. I'd say that we're we're going forward. We're coming to a new plateau. <laughs> we're going forward. We're coming to a new plateau. I don't know. Go, what going, <laughs> going forward, we're coming to a new plateau. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a new paradigm right now that we're trying to follow. And what is that? See, all right, let me explain to you. Obviously, <laughs> you need help. You you obviously need a lot of assistance here, and and fortunately I'm the one I'm the one to help. All right, now listen carefully, and I think I can make it clear to you. All right, within the parameters of post-structuralist discourse, one often finds whether or not it's through personal experience, through trends in society as as a whole, 
sometimes through entirely fictional episodes, whether they be literary, television, movie, whatever, I think that there's a continuity within the culture that at some point or other has to be expressed, whether or not in concrete fashion. And this is precisely what it is that we've been able to zero in on. And I think we're making great progress. I think more progress along these lines than has been made in decades. And this, you see, is precisely why, and I, and I want to be clear about this, this is precisely why the efforts that we're making have to be accepted within one might say the boundaries of acceptable best practice. And this is what we are dedicated to. The continuity of culture. Just so. Concern for sustainability. The acquisition of transparency. These are our hallmarks, and I think they have to be. I think that there's a sense in which all of us need to be aware of these of these basic needs being met. I think if any publicly elected official talks the way you just talked, I think they should be horsewhipped. All right. I, 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 I think they should be ridden out of town on a rail. Okay. I can see that you're very heavily invested emotionally in these issues, and, and that's fine. I celebrate that. I really do. It shows deep concern. It shows an interest that I think is commendable. I really do. Uh, I think, on the other hand, you might also bear in mind that the life experiences of others, whether or not these uh, the others in question choose to express them uh, in a constructive or less constructive manner, nevertheless, I think has a direct bearing on what it is that all of us are really trying to accomplish here. And that being the case, well, you see that that's precisely the question, isn't it? Because within the duality that's expressed here, within the dichotomy between where we've been and where we're going, I think that there's also a necessity to accept and to understand the fact that a rigid approach to these problems without the, the widest possible acceptance of alternatives of other understandings, uh, of other interests, I think could be somewhat less than suboptimal. And it doesn't have to be. I think that there, is, there are workarounds. Well, that's good. I'm glad you have an open mind. Uh, with oh, Yes. Yeah. That's good. I, I hope we made this all clear for you. Absolutely, yeah. Good. Because you see, in an election year like this, there's a lot of emotion, free-floating emotion flying around. Do I vote for this one? Do I vote for that one? And I think in a higher and yet deeper sense, there, there's still a need for a basic mutual understanding and acceptance, uh, regardless of what the results may or may not be of the forthcoming election, or even if there is one. I think that there does need to be an understanding of the totality involved. I don't think there's much understanding of anything, let alone the totality. Well, again, there are different ways you can express this. I mean, again, people have been focusing in the past few months on various seemingly disconnected and yet possibly not entirely related uh, phenomena. I'm talking about COVID. I'm talking about the economy. I'm talking about the civil unrest. All of these different phenomena of everyday life that we're all one way or the other having to deal with, I think in a sense tend to dispel and redirect our attention in other 
perhaps less positive, perhaps more positive venues. Whether or not, I, I don't think at this moment that whether or not uh, this is a useful or an appropriate development can actually be authoritatively said. Wow. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to have to call Father Ripperger on this one because I think we need. <laughs> I think we need. <laughs> you think you think the, de- the the demon of uncertainty needs to be exercised? <laughs> we need to. <laughs> We need to do some tidying up here. We need to do some house cleaning when it comes to get him over to Austria to True Mount. So, so let me let me get this straight. You you had trouble following my line of discourse. Yes. Okay. Well, that takes care of that question. <laughs> Why should you know? Nobody demands clarity out of our masters. Why should I have to give it? I don't know. People who sit still for people in public life driveling along like that, and it's okay. But I do it, and it's like, you can't do that. you got to make sense. Well, why? You give me one good reason why I should have to make sense, and these other people can drivel endlessly. I don't pay you to drivel end- endlessly. That's a very good reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, you're, Good, I'm glad we settled you, that. You, no, I, I, believe me, I'm, I'm, I never said I was insane. I'll always see reasons, especially <laughs> when there's with pay, payment involved. I, I see sweet reasons straight away. So what's new, Charles? What's going on? Funny you should ask. Well, we had Columbus Day, which unfortunately I completely forgot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's easy to do. Uh, I mean, because we filmed this before Columbus Day, so, you know. It's... You, you actually saw this last Columbus Day. Yeah. And the other thing is, in my own defense, uh, I am, uh, what's the word? I am in Austria. So remembering all of our lesser civil holidays is sometimes a little, little weird for me. But by the same token... <laughs> Um, this coming Monday, uh, or Monday the 26th, yeah, it's the coming Monday, a week from tomorrow, is the Austrian national holiday. And I guarantee you nobody's going to remember that back home. So. Uh, this is going to be, they're going to see it's the 19th. Yeah, but okay. the following week. Okay. Um, but I just, so I should really say something about Columbus Day and in Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you really hate Columbus that much because he represents oppression and blah, 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 then what you need to do is stop using European languages, stop using European technology, European food, European medicine. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite and you're benefiting from past injustice. The truth is, there is a good deal of evidence that Columbus was in fact a saint. And whether or not he was, he certainly was not the horrible monster that the people who have no problem murdering infants in the womb by the millions uh, have. And this, you know, this is my answer these days for everything. Well, they were mean to the Indians. Yeah, but you're murdering millions. Well, they were unfair to the blacks. Yeah, but you're murdering millions. Well, they were unfair to women. Yeah, but you're murdering millions. I mean... You know, Hitler was kind to his dog and was a vegetarian. Stalin 
was hurt easily. Yeah, he, he was very emotional. And when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin took it as a personal pain because he thought he and Hitler were friends. Sometimes the bloody-handed and bloody-minded really are the stupidest and thickest people running around. So, if you have a problem with Columbus Day, shut up. Just go somewhere else. Do something else. Stop taking advantage of everything Columbus brought you. Just bye-bye. Just go somewhere else. Alrighty. Uh, as for as for all of the the Antifa morons and uh, statue wreckers and iconoclasts, may no one ever remember who you are. Well, Just, I think yeah, no one is going to remember who they are. Nope. You know, I I when uh, when Teddy Roosevelt's great grandsons expressed their joy and approval of his statue being removed from the uh, American Museum of Natural History. All I could think of was, believe it or not, a Stephen King novel. Uh, well, actually, one of several, the Gunslinger series. In the alternate world of the Gunslinger series, the biggest curse, the biggest insult you had for somebody was you have forgotten the face of your father. And all of these whining ninnies have forgotten the faces of their fathers. It, it's a truly disgusting display. And this is true of organizations like the Sierra Club and whatnot, whose current leadership are, uh, oh, it's just terrible what our founder was like. He was so awful. Yes, you're right. So resign your jobs, get the hell out of that organization, and get real work somewhere else. You know, working on a soup kitchen or something, helping the poor, rather than sitting in your, your cushy offices. I, I, I cannot imagine belonging to an organization whose founder I had no respect for. Just get out. Just get out. Do something real with your lives. Hmm. Americans have no idea of the difference between revolution and reform anymore. Maybe we never did. Well, I mean, we've always had kind yeah. of a problem given our history. Um, and, you know, I've, I've often had people say to me when they find out I'm a monarchist, well, if, you don't, if you're not for the founding fathers, get out. And my response is, oh, the founding fathers... Okay, here's my little problem, Munchkin. What year did the Founding Fathers declare independence? What, 1772? What, I don't know. 1776. Okay. My first ancestor on my dad's side came to this continent in 1648. There are no Founding Fathers to make. Louis XIII and Samuel de Champlain were my founding fathers. Charles I was a founding father. Ferdinand and Isabella, Columbus and La Salle and Coronado, Philip II of Spain and Menendez in Florida, 
de Vargas in New Mexico, Father Serra. These were our founding fathers, our sheriffs and our our judges and our courts and our legislatures and our city clerks and our coroners and all these, the, the paraphernalia of governance, all of it predates both the revolution and the constitution. So please don't yap at me that way. Um, we've always had a problem since the revolution, with revolution. That's why it's difficult. Uh, the, the second civil war is such a problem, morally speaking. Because at the end of the day, if secession was a good idea, was valid, then there's not much you can say against the South. And if it wasn't, well, then the, the colonies had no business seceding from the British Empire. That is the great paradox of our history, especially because with the Puritan element in our makeups, we always have to have been most perfect. We always had to have been virtuous. Well, of course, that's unrealistic in any, you know, when you're dealing with any country's history. But we're not a realistic people because we have this Calvinist background. So it becomes a matter of some moment whether or not you could justify the Civil War morally. If you could justify the revolution morally, you cannot justify the attack on the South. But if you cannot justify the attack on the, if you cannot justify the South secession, you can't justify the colony secession. Are Protestant countries or countries where Protestants are in power, are they more prone to revolution because of sort of uh, because Protestants are deficient in the concept of authority? Well, actually, they are not likely to rebel. If you look at the uh, internal history of Scandinavia, of uh, the Netherlands, of Great Britain, Switzerland, and so forth, I mean, they've had their ups and downs, to be sure, but nothing like the French Revolution, nothing like the uh, repeated wars in Spain and Portugal and Italy and Latin America. Mm. Catholic countries tend to be much more unstable in that regard than Protestant countries. Why do you think that is? Well, my suspicion is that Catholics, and I'm speaking now culturally in a sense, are great believers in absolute truth. And they, they transfer that to everything, including politics, which makes civil wars very, very vicious. With the Protestants, however, they're very big on compromise. It's almost considered a virtue. Not with the old Calvinists, but all the rest of them. Uh, and so, it's easier for them to come to accommodations that simply you couldn't, you simply couldn't do in a Catholic uh, in a Catholic country, uh, because Catholics, even if they lose the faith, are such rigorists in terms of true and false, right and wrong. They can't simply... Well, I'll give an example of what I mean. Now, you know that under the British system, uh, you have this whole rigmarole with Parliament, this beautiful ceremonial that comes down to the Middle Ages, but it's basically empty. The this, this, this speech from the throne where the Queen in Britain, the Governor-General in Canada or Australia or whatever, the left-hand governors of the Canadian provinces, 
who come out in uniform, beautiful ceremony in Parliament. They'll have all these uh, notables assembled. They're, they're, look them up, uh, speech from the throne online or opening of Parliament. It's a very impressive ceremony. But the Queen or the Governor General reads a speech, which the fiction is that it's what her Parliament are going to consider. The reality is the Queen or the Governor General doesn't write the speech. It's written by the Prime Minister, and it's just setting forth the government's program. But it's put in the mouth of the Queen or the Viceroy, and they go through all this beautiful ceremonial, but it's essentially meaningless. Now, that doesn't bother the Anglo-Saxon Protestant mind. The fact that it's impressive, it's beautiful, for that reason alone, they maintain it, even though it's kind of meaningless in a way. But in Quebec alone of all Canadian provinces, they got rid of all that back in 1968. Now, the result is a much duller, drabber, stupider assembly, which, you know, considering the kind of people that run Quebec since then is not, not a surprise. But they could not tolerate that kind of empty show for cultural reasons. And the funny thing was, I was reading a book about it in French, and they referred to that ceremonial as the liturgie parlementaire, the parliamentary liturgy. And that was a, a perfect name for it. That's why when they cease to believe in the crown, that kind, that kind of symbolism was impossible. So they got rid of it. They couldn't coexist with it. And, and, and that also, I, have to, I hate to say this, but that also explains a lot about Vatican II. Because the old mass and the other uh, ceremonies of the church reflected a certain belief system. And when those clerics, when enough of the clerics who were really influential no longer believed in what underlay that system, it had to go. Or to put this another way, the old mass had to go because so many of the people in power in the church were too Catholic to tolerate it anymore too Catholic in attitude, in culture, to tolerate something in which they no longer believed. It's interesting. Well, I mean, it's why it's why in, in uh, uh, the Protestant state churches of Europe, Church of England, Church of Sweden, and all that, and their daughter churches in the settler countries, uh, you can tolerate high church and low church. You know, people who are, look Catholic, versus people who are kind of, you know, this side of holy rollers. And they can coexist in the same body because they can compromise. They can live with that and it doesn't bother them. A Catholic could not tolerate. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, there's, there's an old joke, the Frenchman left the church. And so a friend asked, are you going to become a Protestant? And he said, I said, I've lost my, I've lost my faith, not my reason. Hmm. Wow. Um. I guess uh, let's touch on something we've talked about many episodes ago, but I think it's interesting. Um. So you're talking about the difference between Protestants and Catholic countries. Mm -hmm. Um. And one of the things that you've said in the past is that Protestant countries, uh, including the United States. 
are uh, collectivist because everyone is uh, conforming. That's yeah. very interesting because that's sort of different from the narrative that we're all individualistic. We're individuals, but you say no. That's not no, true. No, we're not. Yeah. It's not. But it comforts us. I mean, again, the, the great contrast between uh, Catholic countries and uh, Protestant countries. Protestant countries can afford, as it were, to have a quote-unquote democratic system because their subjects are very conformist and will basically go along with whatever they're told. Mm. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, don't go to Mass. Though I'm sorry, still too soon. But in Catholic countries, the governments tend to be much rougher and uh, authoritarian, partly because, uh, partly because their peoples are tough, rough, and will not, uh, will not. Uh, basically, in order to get them in line, you got to smack them around. So, are you telling me that a totally Catholic society? will actually resemble Catholic Twitter. No, because what's lacking in Catholic Twitter and what's lacking in Catholic societies today is legitimate authority. Well, I was talking about disagreements and... No, and, and that's what I'm talking about. There's no authority. one to mediate. There's no one to mediate. There's no, there's no king, no emperor, and in the church, uh, very little... Very little uh, top control to say this is true and this isn't. And when you take that authority away, which is what the successive revolutions I mentioned earlier did, then all you're left with are a bunch of contending, uh, contending individualists, real individualists, who can only be suppressed by power because there's no authority to tame them. Wow. That is some food for thought. Well, it's it's why uh, it's why so many Catholic countries have had dictators. You know, the shadow of the king, the empty throne. Hmm. Okay, and we haven't even gotten to the questions, and you've gotten very thought provoking, Charles. All right, it's not my fault. I blame the elves. Let's, well, let's not bring the elves into it. I don't recognize the existence of elves, just like I don't recognize what? the existence of aliens. So basically you're discriminating against very important elements of Southern California's population. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ladies and gentlemen, you have seen it right here, right now. This man, president, CEO, chief, chief uh, uh, Pangendrum, of Tumblr House Corporation, Lord of the Tumblr House Tower Complex, master of all that he surveys, has practiced discrimination against poor beings just because they happen to be non-humanoid. Well, let me tell you something. I don't care if someone comes from Alpha Centauri or Mars or the, the fairy knoll under the, under the hill. That person is as deserving of respect as deserving of credit as anybody, anybody else in the world. No. <laughs> okay. 
I, I would know, go on, pay, but I think you don't pay me. You don't pay me to respect elves. <laughs> hmm. Okay. You don't. I have never gotten a penny out of you for my respect for elves. That's not true. one red cent. Yeah. Yeah. All right then. I'm glad we okay. got that settled. Finally. All right, time for the means of production. Nationalize the means of production. For the common good. All right, first we've got a comment from a guy named Trunket Carr. Uh, in the future, when all media is destroyed, except inexplicably Tumblr House videos, historians will puzzle about the tales of Tyrone and his AK-47 defending this Catholic bookshop from hordes of the homeless. I think that's true. And who knew the homeless was so so desperate for Catholic reading material? I know. That's... Yep. Talk about food for thought. <laughs> All right. Um, and so this came from... This next one has come from Twitter. Uh, I think Cessary the Pole made this. And he says... Blessed Carl of Austria is praised by Amy Coney Barrett during the confirmation. Let's bring that up. There it is. Wow, there is a picture of Amy Coney Barrett holding Blessed Charles of Austria by Charles Coulomb. And apparently, yeah, Cesare says she says we need to restore the Holy Roman Empire. Fake news. Look at fake news. I didn't watch. I didn't watch the confirmation, so I don't know, but. What I would like to imagine is that she was asked some of these questions, and in response to to some of you know uh, answering that she's conservative and, and such, she just gratuitously and shamelessly plugs the book. It turns into a book book plug. It's available at tumblerhouse.com for twenty eight dollars. Forget free shipping and handling on all your orders. Void like were prohibited. I, void were prohibited. Sorry, no CODs. Act now while supplies last. I would pay I would pay so much money for that to actually happen. Well, you know, though, it turns out this confirmation is invalid. What? Well, it wasn't a bishop present. Oh, Charles. Not even a priest. Just a bunch of stupid laymen and women. They can't confect the sacrament of confirmation. You know better. Confirmation has more meanings than that. That's like... <sighs> what are we going to do with you, Charles? Uh, heavily subsidize the Coulomb home for upset celebrities. <laughs> that this would actually my... get some funding. That, that actually, like, you, you should actually, like, do a Kickstarter or something for that. And, uh, I, this is my retirement job. Yeah. You know, already the, the employees have, uh, we've hired have, have given me a title. What's the title? Big Daddy. What's that all about? Well, you know, people have compared this place, uh, I'm sure humorously, to a plantation. Uh-huh. That's all. Okay, okay. So they call me Big Daddy. <laughs> okay, Charles. No, it's it's true. The occupational uh, therapist, uh, Mr. Legree, he uh, he tells me that he's got a full program set up for the uh, for the celebrities as they arrive. 
he told me Idle Hands, the Devil's Workshop. So he's he's going to get them working pretty quick. That's great. It's all part of their therapy. Did you know that planting uh, uh, cash crops can be very, very restful? I did not know that. Mr. Uh, Mr. Legree assures me that he's had a lot of really, really good results. You know what you need to do? I think you you have a marketing problem here. I think what you need to, to form it as um, is to tailor it more as a, a rehabilitation clinic. Because there yeah. actually is that. Like there actually, for those of you who aren't in California, we see this all the time. This Malibu, like the most expensive rehab you can imagine. Um and uh, it's rehab in Malibu. And uh, so you have to market yourself like that. See, rehabilitation. Yeah, I, I think so. I was considering going to that place, by the way. For, for what? For rehab. Yeah, I know. From what? Well, see, that's why I ended, there were two reasons why I ended up not going. I took all the diagnostics and so on. It turned out I didn't have anything that they treat. So that was part of a problem, but that but that was not the deal killer. Okay, what was the deal killer? Because they still would have treated me for just for general unhappiness. The deal killer was the cost. I didn't have the money. Oh well, yeah, of course. Yeah. So. Well. I, I mean, they were very they were very anxious to find out all about my case until that part came up. I'm sure. Then they couldn't get me out of the door quickly enough. I didn't know what that. I got. I, I literally got the bums rush. I was very hurt. Okay, let us move on. Um, okay, fine. Uh, we have a prayer intention request. Uh, Luis ah. asks us to pray for the Spanish Catholic people. The government is trying to tear down the Valley of the Fallen. Oh, yeah. So keep that in your prayers. Now, for everyone who doesn't know, can you tell everyone what the Valley of the Fallen is? I sure can. This is really the current Spanish government, ladies and gentlemen, are real scum. I mean, these creatures are not worth the bubble gum on my heel. Literally. All right, the Valley of the Fallen is a huge valley, hence the name, that was dedicated by Francisco Franco as a monument to the dead on both sides during the Spanish Civil War. And he himself was entombed there. And then a Benedictine monastery was set up there to pray for the dead on both sides in the Spanish Civil War. Now the, the I don't know what to call him, the president of the Council of Ministers, the Prime Minister of Spain, is a socialist. And he and his little band of Chiquitas, uh, first they got Franco pulled out of there. They want to get rid of the monks. They want to pull down everything and basically destroy the Valley of the Fallen. And they're scum. They're, they, what they're trying to do, whether they're smart enough to realize it or not, they're probably not smart enough because political classes today tend to be really dumb. And they don't understand that when you rip open wounds that were more or less healed over, bad things will happen to you. Your little rear end may get shot off someday. It'd be terrible. Real loss. Well, they, I think, are, are doing their best to reignite the passions that tore Spain apart in 1936. I pray to God they don't succeed. 
And if they do succeed, I pray that they and only they are the victims of their handiwork and no one else. I, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, there are so many of these malicious morons around. We have them ourselves, you know, for Columbus and Father Sarah and on and on and on. There's so many of these people. I understand that there's a big problem with modern life today. So much of it is artificial. So much of it, it feels unreal. The people, uh, whether in government and at the top or all the way down to the bottom, feel a need to make a statement because, you see, they have no spiritual life. They have no, no belief, really, no specific belief in the survival of the soul and in its punishment or reward. And so as a result, they've got to do something. There's got to be a reckoning with history. Well, my little munchkins, there'll be a reckoning with history, all right, but you won't like it when you get it. Reckonings with history, you know, they're a little bit like closure. That's another phrase I utterly hate, closure. I um, I knew a fellow who um, ran an old age home by the name of Jordan Fishman. He was more famous in his earlier career as a runner of nightclubs in Detroit in the 60s. The Chit Chat Lounge comes to mind, famous if you're a jazz lover. Mr. Fishman told me a story of a lady whose father had died in the old age home that he was, that he was running. And the father was a very old man. He was in his 90s. He had a lot of problems, and he died. Well, she alleged uh, some sort of malpractice and sued them. And they went to court, and she sued, you know, every time she would get defeated, she would appeal to the next highest court. And it literally went up, I mean, as far as it could go. And every time the judges, the courts had found in their favor, because they had done nothing wrong. They had done everything they could to keep the guy alive, and he died. So when they had the last judgment, and that was the end of the case, there was nothing more to be done. He walked over to her, and he said, all right, ma'am, it's all done. There's nothing more to be said about it legally. But I've got to ask you, what do you want out of us? Really? It's been proved to you in court that we did nothing to harm your father. What is it you want? And said, Mr. Fishman, she said to me, I want closure. And I looked at her, and I felt so sad. And I said to her, ma'am, what you want, you are never going to get this side of the, of the grave. I'm very sorry that your father is dead, but my father is dead, and we all have to deal with it. It just, there's no way around it. Well, similarly, just as she could not achieve closure, but she could wreak havoc in other people's lives. So similarly, there will never be an historical reckoning in the sense that the believers in systemic racism imagine. What there can be, or in the case of the Spanish government for the Spanish Civil War, what there can be is a ripping open of old wounds, a reigniting of old hatreds, and a lot of dead people. One could only hope that those responsible for the carnage are the primary sufferers. Unfortunately, that's usually not how history works out.
It would be so much easier if it were. Alas and alack. So, let us say a prayer for the people of Spain. And for that matter, the people of Latin America, they just pulled down the uh, statue of Columbus in Mexico City. And for the, uh, for the people of the United States, that the stupid and the moronic, rather than getting what they deserve, simply or forcibly shut up and left to bite their fingers alone in the dark, and sane people are able to get on with their lives. And by sane people, I don't just mean people of my particular political or religious persuasion. I'm people, I mean people who are content to let the past be in order to let the present and the future be worthwhile for everyone. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. James the Great. Pray for us. Guardian Angel of Spain. Pray for us. Our Lady of Guadalupe. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Oh, and St. Junipero Serra. Pray, pray for, for us. us. All right. Well, what else we got? You, know, you, you talk about these insane rulers, but and to protect the sane people, but we're in we're electing insane people. That's all we have to to vote for. I mean, you got to understand that if the only place you've got to catch fish is one particular pool then that's the only place your fish are going to come from. I mean, there, there are several ways you could, you could analyze where we are right now. Obviously, I have one of my own. I would say that various structural problems, if you like, that were present in the Republic from the beginning are facing all sorts of other factors that we're not. And that all of these things coming together are producing stresses and strains that probably the structure that we've that I've grown up with will not be able to sustain. My suspicion is that there will be a period of greater or less conflict uh, anywhere between widespread civil unrest to full-fledged civil war. And out of that will come a strong man. And out of that, I have no idea what will come from that. But I could very easily be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. And as I've told everyone I've made these predictions to, I'm turning 60 this year. If we all live to see my 70th, I pray to God that we can laugh at what, about what a moron I was and how stupid my predictions were. I really hope so. I don't want to be right. Not this much. So let's hope I'm wrong. Let's hope that saner heads will prevail. Let's hope that the American people will somehow or other not be morons. All right. On to the questions. We have two, right. two good questions from William. William. 
I have been looking into the Anglican Ordinariate more closely, mostly out of curiosity, and have come away quite impressed. Seems that they have preserved elements of medieval Catholicism that we ourselves lost. I watched one of their liturgies on YouTube, and it was beautiful. Do you think the ordinary liturgy could and should be the way forward for liturgy in the Anglosphere, with Samorum Pontificum always allegedly under one threat or another, the hierarchy would not touch the ordinariates because that would not be ecumenical. We know ecumenism and dialogue is the essence of the gospel. How do you think we can best help grow the presence of the ordinariate here in these United States? Well, I mean, one way, up until now, the way the ordinariate has grown, apart from individuals coming in, have been communities primarily of Anglicans uh, coming in en masse. I don't know how long that would continue. So uh, the trick is to find both Catholics who are ex-Anglicans or Methodists or whatever who might be interested, as well as uh, current Anglicans or Methodists or whatever who might be interested in converting. In other words, founding new communities is really what the Ordinariate's all about, as well as adding members to ones that already exist. So... You know, how do you do that? Well, it depends on where you are. But if you were, for instance, in, um, if you were in a, in a uh, town where there's a heavy Anglican presence, there's a good chance that uh, you've got both current Catholics and possibly disaffected Anglicans who might be interested in putting together an ordinary community. Once you identify 20 or so of these people, get in touch with the ordinary and see what they say. Uh, oddly enough, although I'm a cradle Catholic, I've never been an Anglican, but I am a member of the ordinary canonically. Okay. In the interest of full disclosure, uh, the reason is that my godson, uh, who's an ordinary priest, founded several parishes, one of which I was a founding member of. And there was a very short period where if you joined an ordinary parish as a founding member, even though you were a cradle Catholic, you could join the ordinary. So that's what happened. My bishop is actually not Archbishop Gomez, but Bishop uh, Stephen Loach. All right. Next question from William. How are trads in Europe different than trads in America? Are they less Puritan? Uh, excuse me. Are they less Puritan and legalistic? Seems like there is a lot of infighting among traditional Catholics in America, especially over what is a sin and what is not a sin. I see the Facebook battles and the Twitter wars, and I think to myself that this cannot be the lived experience of most Catholics throughout the ages. Technology aside, that there must be an American influence here somewhere. Having lived on both sides of the pond, what are some noted differences between Catholicism here and Catholicism in Europe? Well, Catholicism in the States is much more activist. I mean, people are very used to taking things in their own hands and getting stuff done. Uh, but uh, Catholicism, as uh, traditional Catholicism here, is much more at home in its own skin. Or to put this another way, the most American Americans, in a sense, are the evangelicals and the Mormons. 
But the most Austrian Austrians, the most French French, the most Italian Italians are trad Catholics. So there's a certain odd level of comfort. Not, and it's, it's not comfort in the sense of, you know, just feeling good about myself and that's it. But there is a sense of being deeply at home and as a result having to defend something against the attempt to corrupt it from the outside that we don't have in America. I mean, the, the faith screams at you all over Catholic Europe. You can't avoid it. And the traditionalist Catholic in those parts of the world simply wants to restore something that once was. But with American Catholics, I don't think anybody anymore really wants to restore the church of the 1950s. And before the 1950s, we were a very poor church, except in certain places. Um, I don't think anybody wants to restore that. In a sense, uh, Catholic American trads are really looking for a new paradigm entirely, even if they're not conscious of it. Uh, in a similar way, um, in Catholic Europe, outside of Ireland, there really was uh, never trouble with a high level of liturgical practice. Uh, processions and, and solemn high masses and all that. Always the case, and even a lot of Novus Ordo stuff tries to model itself after that. But with us, uh, it's interesting to me that the liturgical movement, which arose in the uh, teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s, before it went kind of cray-cray, they were trying to establish that kind of liturgical life in America. They did not really succeed before the council. Outside of certain liturgical parishes, which you usually have one or two of these in each major city, where they would have the, the major mass on a Sunday would be a solemn high, they would have solemn vespers with uh, benediction in the evening on Sunday. You know, there'd be a really full liturgical life. That was not common. And most parishes, um, they may do with a lot of low masses. You know, you, you, you've heard the old horror stories about uh, the most popular priest being able to do a low mass in 15 minutes uh, on a weekday. Well, you know, we've all heard those stories. Now, however true they were or weren't, the important thing to remember is that the liturgical life in trad communities today in America is very much what the liturgical movement was looking for prior to the council. So in a weird way, it actually accomplished its goal, to a degree anyway. Only the trad, the, the trad communities have taken the place of the liturgical parishes of yore. What were they looking for for in pre-Vatican II? Oh, well, uh, regular solemn high masses, regular uh, uh, solemn vespers and benediction, uh, more popular interest in liturgy. And that, I mean, trads, the, the average trad layman is far more interested in the liturgy than the average Catholic layman in 1950. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, and the, the, the liturgical movement people wanted 
the laity to be much more involved in the liturgical life of the church. And perforce, they've become so. Okay. Question from Robert. Could Charles explain how did the nobility get their money? I'm reading Pride and Prejudice, and it seems to me that they get it from some kind of rent that their estates earn them. Also, could Charles explain how you become owner of land in England? As I understand it, it's not that if you buy a piece of land that it's yours and your descendant uh, indefinitely, but it's some kind of a long-term lease. Well, it's called the freehold. Basically, uh, land law in Britain and most of the United States goes back to medieval times. That's the first thing. Uh, the king is the lord of the land, ultimately. In America, de facto, the United States government, uh, the state governments, the county governments, the city governments, the lord of the land, de facto, not constitutionally. Um, but that's why they can take your property for eminent domain. That basically... That tells you who the lord of the land is, is who can exercise eminent domain over you. Well, yeah, yeah, the lord of the land, I can vote. Yeah, okay, great. Tell me again when they seize your property. So the, uh, the thing is that the aristocracy, the nobility in Europe arose from the feudal era. Central government broke down. Local people basically made deals with the man with, 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 with weapons of troops. At any rate, um, originally in kind, uh, the peasants kept everybody eating, basically. And then eventually, when a cash economy came in through payments, you're exactly right. That was how they made their living. How they, how they made their money was through the rents. They owned the land, and they, uh, they rent it. Now, today, it's interesting. Uh, Many of the great estates in England are broken up, and some remain. A lot of them remain in the cities, which is interesting. But like in London, there are, I don't know, five or six or seven great estates, one of which belongs to the Duke of Westminster, which were literally estates once, and now they're all covered over with housing and offices and so on. But it's still his property. The, the, uh, they rent or lease the freehold, but they still get their share. Um, yeah, and that's just, just the way it is. Um, but in, in the last century, since World War I uh, in Britain, a lot of the nobility and gentry had to sell off a lot of their land to corporations or to individuals. So there is a lot more individual ownership uh, in parts of the country than there were. So is that that's mainly how the nobility make their money is rent? If they still have any land. If they don't, now some of them went into industry, especially like for instance, those noblemen who found they had coal on their property suddenly found they were owners of coal mines. Which you know that that was one thing. And then of course the other thing too is that up until nineteen sixty the uh, 63, the kings of Great Britain uh, made nobles rather freely from the ranks of the wealthy. 
Uh, these could be statesmen, they could be prime ministers, whatever. But also they were very often industrialists or shipping magnates or newspaper uh, grandees. Uh, there's a, um, a wonderful scene with Dan Aykroyd in the film Bright Young Things where he plays Lord Miramart, I think the name is, who's one of these Canadian press lords, which Britain, Britain had like three or four of these guys that ran big chunks of the press. And they were Canadians, you know, because Canadians and British subjects could freely move to Britain. And having made a ton of money, they got ennobled. So Dan Aykroyd is telling this Englishman, again, as Lord Miramart, the, the great publishing magnate, he says, he pulls open the curtain. There you see London spread out under his office. And he says, look at it. And, and, a, and a real, Dan Aykroyd doing a real broad Canadian accent, specifically not English. He says, look out there. Why, that's the, the capital of the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Where else could a boy from necessity, Manitoba, come over here and become a millionaire in the press? Nowhere else on earth, I guarantee you. You know, he sounds like an American almost. Hmm. But put in those terms, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, you know. I can picture it. I can picture Dan Aykroyd saying that. Yeah, it's a funny, funny scene. I, I always get a kick out of watching it. Where else can a boy from necessity Manitoba? <laughs> and you know, the, the funny thing is that there's a, a real world, another real world parallel to that, uh, to the way things were in those days, the way people became ennobled or knighted. There was an American fellow from Vermont named Harry Oakes. And long about 1890-something, uh, there was a big gold rush in the Klondike. Well, Harry Oaks decided he'd join it. But the problem was he didn't have any money. So he stowed away on a train. And the train ended up taking him somewhere in mid-Canada, the Prairie Provinces somewhere. I forget where now. But he was discovered, and they threw him off the train. So he thought, well, all right, I'm here. I might as well prospect. So he prospected. And he found in the middle of nowhere, nobody had any idea that it existed, he found what became the British, the biggest gold mine in the British Empire. Wow. Wow, indeed. And so Harry Oaks became Sir Harry Oaks with homes in New York and Miami and Nassau and London and uh, Toronto, I think. And he was, he was a huge magnate. Of course, his daughters were much sought after. Well, there's an, an, an island in the Indian Ocean called Mauritius that was French, was conquered by the British in the Napoleonic Wars. It's been British until independence in the uh, 70s, but still French-speaking. And part of the peace treaty that made it British required the British to recognize the titles of the French nobility living there. So this French, this Franco-Mauritian nobleman married Sir Harry Oakes' daughter, I mean, you, you, it's all a because weird... he got thrown off the train. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a weird story that could only have happened within the context of the British Empire in the 20th and 19th and 20th centuries. It, 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 it just, outre is all get off. Uh, Sir Harry got murdered. Oh, no. Yeah, living in Nassau. And uh, King Edward VIII, uh, who had abdicated, he was. Now the Duke of Windsor was the governor of the Bahamas. He knew Sir Harry. 
So Harry gets brutally murdered. Uh, the, the son-in-law I mentioned was actually the major suspect. Uh, but the, uh, the, the uh, Duke got into a lot of local annoyance because he didn't think the Bahamian police were up to investigating the crime. So he called in detectives from the Miami Police Department. And they weren't able to solve it either. So to this day, it's officially unsolved. Hmm. Okay. Uh, question from uh, Gunter. Yeah. Uh, I could be mistaken, but I recall hearing in a past episode that Charles was a Boy Scout. If I'm wrong, please disregard my question. I went through Cub Scouts, Weebelos, and Boy Scouts. I earned my Eagle Scout rank in 1976, and I earned my Ad Altare Dei medal. Uh, oh, yeah. I was wondering what Charles uh, Charles's memories of scouting are and what he thinks of scouting today. All good questions. Well, firstly, uh, you're obviously a year older than me, uh, or maybe I was a late bloomer. I got my Eagle Scout in 77. You got yours in 76. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I was a Cub Scout. I joined the Cubs when I was nine years old in 69 and became what was called a, uh, a Bear Scout. You were, the first rank then was Wolf, then Bear, then Weebelo. And I was a, a Bear, then a Weebelo, nine, ten of the ages. And then at 11... I uh, joined the Boy Scouts through 363 Hollywood, California, out of Blessed Sacrament Church, where my brother was an Eagle Scout. And um, I went up through the ranks to Eagle. I got both the Adultory Day and the Pope Pius XII Award. Uh, Oddly enough, in recent years, I have made the, the acquaintance again of a fellow who I met because whenever we do, we used to have a different troop. But whenever there was any larger scout event, like both Adultory Day and Pius XII, he was always standing next to me because his name was Conley, and I was Coulomb. So that's how we got to know each other. Well, I hadn't seen him in God knows how long. But about five years ago, uh, we ran into each other. I didn't remember him at all at first. He said... Uh, you don't remember me. I said, no. I said, I'm Conley. I used to stand next to you at the Adultory Day, the Pius XII. I was like, oh, my God. Now I do remember. And then we started cackling like hyenas because we both, well, were older than we were then. It's true. But I learned a lot from scouting. I uh, was fortunate enough to have come in in 71. So I had about a year and a half or more under the old program before they changed it in 73, just in time for the national uh, jamboree in uh, uh, Idaho, Farragut State Park, which I went to. Um, And they changed the program, not hugely in retrospect, but at the time it seemed like a gigantic change. And one of the more annoying things they did was to give us berets. Now, I've got to explain something. I'm French. If I touch a beret, it's perfect. But unless Americans are in the army where they can, they've got the time to make you learn how to do it properly, Americans look stupid in berets. That's the problem with the Knights of Columbus. They, they just they don't know what to do, and 
everyone's beret looks different and they all look stupid and weird because they just don't know how to deal with them. It's not that hard. I mean, as I say, I touch mine. It's perfect. But, you know, we can't all be French, as I've learned to my to my cost growing up. Uh, at any rate, the the uh, we did camping, did all sorts of things, and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, a big, big part, really, of who I am. The uh, the twelve points of the Scout Law, Baden Powell, all that good stuff. Uh, my interest in conservation and the Indians and all kinds of other things I owe to the Scouts. What do I think of the Scouts today? Not much. The current leadership in uh, of the corporation in Texas have ruined it. They really have, have wrecked it. Uh, first, by the admission of uh, gender-challenged uh, scouts. I mean, I've got to say something. Scouting has got to have been one of the most asexual experiences of my life. It had nothing to do with it. Uh, if any of my fellow scouts were that way, I certainly never knew about it. Nobody ever said anything. And I, I'm fine with that. To, to, to sexualize it that way is a crime. An utter crime. Um, then, of course, uh, gender-challenged adults with an ex, and they brought that in. Now they're brought in chicks, and they've got now all-girl Boy Scout troops. Well, you know what? Fairly well, my lady. That, by the way, is not to the girl Boy Scouts. It's to the leadership of the scouting program. Fairly well, my lady. I um, And it, it's... I look at the, the self-destruction of the scouts, the way I look at what's going on with the Knights of Columbus, the Order of Malta. So many of our institutions are rotting from within. And seemingly it's unstoppable because they're, you know, the, people, the people in charge, when they want your money, always yap about how, oh, well, it's all of us in together. But somehow whenever decisions are made, you'll do as you're told, moron, and if you don't like it, lump it. Okay, well, I'll lump it. I um, just yet another sign of the ever ever increasing decay of uh, what remains of American society. But oh, scouting was such a great program; it really was. And I I belonged to two Catholic troops in the course of my career, so we had Scout Sunday once a month at Mass. You know, with the Scouts with the altar boys and everything. We'd have a we'd precede the priest with a troop flag and all this. Big part of my life, scouting, and I am sorry that I can say to see it go down the tubes. All that manure and decaying material it has to be good for growing something. Um, taking leadership figures of various sorts and making scarecrows out of them, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Uh, question from Nicholas. All right. Hello, gentlemen. I'm interested in learning more about Constantine the 11th Palaeo... 
Paleologos. 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 The last emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. While I intend to pick up readings discussing him, it is always delightful to listen to Charles discuss such topics. And so I was hoping Charles could take some time to discuss Constantine the Eleventh. Well, yes, I can. Fascinating character. Uh, his brother, back in 1438, I think, had brought Constantinople back into union with Rome. And it's very important to remember that Constantine XI died, lived and died a Catholic. Uh, he was the last emperor of Byzantium, the last Eastern Roman emperor. Very brave man, and the Catholic Byzantines in Turkey revere him as a blessed, blessed Constantine the Eleventh. He uh, did his best to summon Western assistance to defend Constantinople against the Turks. He failed; the city was attacked, and he died leading his troops. And there's a story that. Um, that he had retreated to Santa Sofia and they were offering the last liturgy <clears throat> when the Turks arrived and so the emperor the liturgy and the priest all vanished into the wall at Santa Sofia and so the, the last emperor will supposedly return one day like King Arthur and that last liturgy will be finished the priest and the, the altar will come out of the wall and conclude the liturgy. Hmm. Okay. Question from Marianne. I see a lot of debate online on the to topic of circumcision. I'm a convert to Catholicism and don't entirely understand their stance. Why was it okay for Our Lady to have Jesus circumcised, but now it's vehemently protested against? Uh, I understand that the anti-circumcision arguments and agree. I just don't understand why people are so triggered about it and why, if Jesus himself is circumcised, why people are so judgmental about those who still choose it as a medical procedure out of ignorance or tradition. By this, I mean that generations of Americans were circumcised as a matter of course the day they were born. My husband wanted our son circumcised before I was aware of the church's stance. I've often consoled myself slightly knowing that Our Lady did it, albeit for entirely different and good reason. Well, this is kind of interesting. I mean, I, I think you're possibly taking too much on yourself in that I cannot think of a recent uh, church condemnation of circumcision. It may well have been that there were medieval popes who were against the practice simply to differentiate Gentiles from Jews. But I, I don't know if there's anything, I mean, I'm open to correction, but I don't know if there's anything of a real teaching against it. To the best of my knowledge, which of course could be wrong, it's a, a neutral matter. Um, a few years ago, the city of San Francisco attempted to ban circumcision, and that started a real mess. Uh, and this is an area that I think, if ever there was an area of dealing with children that really needs to be left up to the parents, it's this, you know. So, I, um, 
That's about all I can say about it. Okay. All right, our last question today is from James. All right. Dear Charles, after being a loyal listener of Off the Menu for years, I've finally taken the plunge and become a patron. God bless you. God bless you. It's an honor to support you and the wonderful work you do. With Columbus Day coming up as I write this, I felt that this question needed to be asked. Recently listened to a podcast in which Columbus's time as governor of Hispaniola is cast as a time of pure villainy. The podcast claimed that Columbus worked tens of thousands of enslaved natives to death in gold mines and that his regime ruled the island with terror and torture. The podcast went on to claim that he treated the enslaved natives of Hispaniola in a manner that would make, quote, most Aztec kings look benign by comparison, end quote. And that in Spain he earned the derisive nickname of Pharaoh. Is there any truth to these claims, or are they simply another aspect of Columbus's black legend that is so vogue in these days? Another aspect of Columbus's black legend. It's nonsense. Of course, um, mind you, it's coming from people who don't notice millions of infants being murdered. I, I, I have to, I have to, I, I've got to bring that up. That's my constant refrain now, because I'm sick of it. I'm sick of all of these ninnies. Oh, it's terrible with Donto dead. Yeah, but you're okay with murdering millions of infants. What What I would say to that is, prove to me that you aren't racist and names a, a historical Spanish figure who didn't mistreat native americans and then well, and then and then you'll prove to me that you're not racist because otherwise if you just blanket call all the every single spanish figure uh you know a, a terror then you you might be racist sir no no they, they all were the spaniards are evil everyone knows that <laughs> spain is an evil country it's not nice and enlightened like new england land of the unitarians that's true. Yeah. You remember why the uh, Boston lady couldn't accept the divinity of Christ? Why? Well, she was asked, and she said, I simply cannot believe in the existence of a God who would name his only begotten son after my gardener. Oh, no. That's, and it's a combination for people like that, for really stupid people living in Boston and elsewhere, of whom there are always many. It's the combination of Spaniard as Indian killer, uh, forgetting King Philip's war and so on, and Spaniard as gardener and, you know, low-class bum. That's the combination that's in their little pinheads. This claim that most Aztec kings look benign by comparison. You know, literally eat your heart out. Yeah, I I didn't know he he did those sorts of things. It's just, I can only take so much stupidity at one sitting. You know, really, really, just. Where do we get such men? Why is stupidity? Why is it stupiditas omnia vincit? Stupidity conquers all. Why does it have to be that way? How do you write stuff on history when you're ahistorical? <laughs> well, you remember, every... yeah, sorry. you remember the drivel I was driveling at you earlier? Yeah. You write it. 
What? Deconstructionist pap. Who buys that, though? Other academics. And they foist it on, on college students who, if they're not very bright, accept it and swallow it. And then they become Antifas and little munchkins pull down statues. And they think that that means that they mean something and have some importance. They're wrong, of course. Poor little munchkins. You know, I'm going to I'm going to tell a, a little story here. Just what you said reminds me of this. Um, like 15 years ago or so, uh, I was interviewing everywhere for a job. And I interviewed at a really liberal Catholic press that will remain unnamed. And their bread and butter were textbooks and selling to institutions. They were really struggling with the, the trade books, the, the books that to sell the people. And I thought, I know why. I know why that is. The schools and these churches, they'll, they'll eat up all the crap that you publish. But the people who actually care about their religion, they don't need this garb. They don't need this garbage. Why, why, would, why would they need to read books about this? You've already convinced them that their faith is meaningless. Why? why? You know, so it, it's funny, but these people also, they had no idea about what they're doing, you know? That yeah, they're killing everything, and that's why your tradebacks aren't selling because you're stupid. They're badly written and they're full of garbage. Yeah. Those well, I, it's funny you mention this though because I remember that incident. That was when you you told your brother that you didn't need to go into the family firm and you could do your own thing and blah blah blah. I remember that, and then you were in the mail room within two weeks. I remember that too. The uh, you came back. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but you came back, and uh, I remember snickering a little bit and saying, "Ah, well, didn't find a job on the outside, eh, pal?" And you looked at me rather venomously and said you had decided it would be more appropriate to learn the business from the ground up. And boy, are you! Sad that you crossed me in that moment. I because I resolved. <laughs> I said I'm going to show Coulomb. I'm going to rise to the top of this, and I yeah, well, and, then I'll show, and then I'll show him who's boss. Yes, and you have never ceased to remind me <laughs> since your brother went uh, into retirement. Oh golly! Oh, speaking of which, there's a, another bit of news. You're going to be uh, you're going to be sorry that you uh, backed him against me back then. Your friend Oswald has come a little bit of a cropper. Cropper? Yeah, a cropper. In other words, he's fallen on hard times. He is actually selling parts of his John Travolta fan collection that he's treasured these 30 years, his 40 years. He's selling them in Copenhagen. Yeah, see? Oswald Dupree is not the brilliant fellow you always thought he was. And the fact that he is selling his most prized possessions. You remember he had three of those uh, stupid staying alive disco suits. He sold two of them. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you know he wouldn't have parted with those things any more than he'd part with his ears, which would probably be an improvement looks-wise. Uh, 
so, I mean, I, I, I don't want you to think I'm gloating because I'm not like that. I don't gloat. I just think that, you know, it's sooner or later, you're just going to have to own up to the fact that in that particular horse race, you back the loser. Well, I guess. That's okay. Listen, I've known you a long time. We all make mistakes. I understand. I mean, look, in those days, the 70s weren't quite as long ago as they are now. And he had a certain flash to him, you know, before he got those Bride of Frankenstein gray stripes through his Jufro. Uh, I can understand why you would think he was the next best thing. But your brother was right and you were wrong. Let's just, let's accept that. Whatever, Charles. I made a lot more money for Tumblr House than Oswald ever did. And the very fact that uh, he's now selling off parts of that collection, and he loved that collection. You know, I do now. I was waiting to see if the Saturday Night Fever poster with the John Travolta uh, autograph was going on eBay. It hasn't. So he is holding on to his most treasured items. Well, you know, I'm happy, Charles. That makes me happy that you're happy that you've made so much money for Tumblr House and clearly you don't have to sell your possessions in the way that Oswald has to sell his possessions. So everything's good. And Yes, it is. And that's great. And Well, I just think it's a way of showing you that, you know, your brother knew what he was doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I certainly don't disagree with the way you run the company. I just think that back then... Somebody knew what they were doing, and somebody needed more experience. That's all. And you gained it. <laughs> very good, Charles. Very good. Very tactful, as always. Ah, I try. Oh, and speaking of tactful, other one bit of good news for you, and I know you'll be happy to hear this. Are you ready? Ready. And, I, and by the way, I'm not betraying your confidence, because even though it's a surprise party, you won't know where in the building it is. But the staff authorized me to tell you. Surprise Halloween party somewhere in the Tumblr House Tower. Okay. Well, I'll keep my eyes peeled, I guess. I don't know. I, I would. Yeah. I, I, I'd be. You're going to. Sometime Saturday, you're going to be. Or, um, yeah, it's Saturday week. You're going to be wandering around the tower, and they're going to all shriek surprised. There'll be ghosts and goblins and all that. And by the way, well, this is one area where I have to thank you. As you know, Halloween is banned this year in the county of Los Angeles. So the employees are very, very happy they're going to be able to celebrate it despite the uh, you know, the rules, which they couldn't do if they were outside the tower. So, Okay. Banned. That's news to me. In every supermarket in the area, they have a bunch of Halloween goodies. Oh, I am shocked. You know, this rebelliousness is like on uh, the Fourth of July. But let me read you the um, let me read you the decree by our lords and masters. Are you ready? Ready. Halloween activities. Not permitted. 
Gatherings and events are not currently allowed under the health officer order. Halloween gatherings, events or parties with non-household members are not permitted, even if they are conducted outdoors. Carnivals, festivals, live entertainment, and haunted house attractions are not allowed. Not recommended. Door-to-door trick-or-treating is not recommended because it can be very difficult to maintain proper uh, social distancing on porches and at front doors. Ensure that everyone answering or coming to the door is appropriately masked to prevent disease spread and because sharing food is risky. I'd never heard that, by the way, that you could get it through food. This is the first time I'd ever heard this for anywhere. Trunk or treating, where children go from car to car instead of door to door to receive treats, is also not recommended, particularly when part of Halloween events it's is difficult to avoid crowding and sharing food. Permitted and recommended. Online parties and contests, for example, costume or pumpkin uh, carving. Car parades that comply with public health guidance for vehicle-based parades, including drive-by events or contests where individuals dress up or decorate their vehicles, and drive-by judges that are appropriately physically distanced. Drive-through events where individuals remain in their vehicles and drive through an area with Halloween displays. Drive-in events where individuals can receive a treat bag limited to commercially packaged non-perishable treats or take away an item from an organizer while the participants remain in their vehicle. Halloween movie nights at drive-in theaters must comply with the public health drive-in movie theater guidance. Halloween-themed meals at outdoor restaurants must comply with restaurant protocol. Halloween-themed art installations at an outdoor museum must comply with public health museum guidance and dressing up homes and yards with Halloween-themed decorations. So that is what is allowed to you in the celebration of Halloween this year. You know, if I had money to burn and I was part of some conservative political movement in a big way, I would I would get like private investigators to look at all these democratic rulers that are putting forth these laws and making sure that they're abiding by their own laws. Well, you saw Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done. That yeah, was she something. was set up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she was set up. <laughs> I mean, come on. Just you know, that on. happened to John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> what? He was set up. Uh, he was framed. You never heard the multiple gun theory about the Lincoln assassination? No. No, neither is anyone else. Uh, it's just... <laughs> It is. It is pretty stupid. I don't know how long all this is going to go on. I suspect, though, it'll it'll abate to a great degree after the election. I hope it stops soon because it just hurts the ability of civil authority in general. Well, yeah, it makes them look stupid, and, and people it encourages well, lawlessness. Well, you know, you know, a good example of the same sort of thing was during prohibition. That's very true. No. I mean, prohibition ended up giving the law a black eye. And that's what this kind of drivel. I mean, when the mayor of Los Angeles, I don't want to mention Mayor Garcetti's name, but when he declared that any house, any party house, quote unquote, would have their electricity and their water cut off, where the hell does he get that kind of power? Yeah, that's uh, you control the water company, sir, or the uh, and the electric company. 
yeah, well, why doesn't he start paying our bills? And that way there won't be a problem. <laughs> you know, you said, tell you what, Mr. Mayor, your honor, sir, you could decide whether or not I can have electricity and water if you take on the responsibility of paying for them. And then I'll do whatever you tell me to, because your expense, you're paying for me, so you get to make the rules, just like Daddy and Mommy when I lived at home. So, too, you pay all my expenses like Mommy and Daddy, and you can treat me like Mommy and Daddy did. But until then, Mr. Mayor, until you're paying my way, then I suggest, I suggest you tuck up, you whelp. And this message is not only to Mayor Garcetti, but also to Mayor de Blasio of New York. I'm bi-coastal, so I, it, it, it hasn't escaped me that the two biggest states in the Union and the two biggest cities in those states and in the Union have the stupidest mayors and stupidest governors in the history of the country. You know, I have to say I'm really grateful to not live in Michigan because I feel like that governor is actually the worst. Oh, uh, yeah. She I mean, uh, isn't it a pity they foiled the kidnap plot. I mean, she <laughs> well, even before this, the way she was talking, it was basically if you oppose me, you're an extremist and a Nazi. Oh, yeah. You're an, yeah. No, like literally like she true, really and truly. Her language was that. If you oppose me, you're extreme. And guess what? Guess what happens when you do that? You create extremists. Yeah. I mean, you see, part of the problem here, we've had this discussion, but Americans have disregarded the importance of state, county, municipal government for a long time. And that's wrong. I mean, it was wrong anyway, but you're seeing now why it was wrong. Because when there's a crisis, if you've got a moron in charge, bad things happen. And when morons are in charge, unfortunately, their their morality, their morality doesn't only disrupt their own stupid little lives. It disrupts everybody's. You know? So let this be a lesson, ladies and gentlemen. However the national elections come out, you start putting your attention to local local uh, races of all kinds. Yeah. Do your due diligence. Check these people out. You, we do not want ever again in our lifetimes, anyway, to have these United States sail into a period of crisis where state, local, and uh, and county and municipal government is in the hands of morons. You know. And a large part of it is simply because I, I firmly believe people voted party and they or they voted or they didn't vote or they voted convenience. You know, well, it's not that important anyway, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway. But do keep the spirit of Halloween, whatever you end up doing and wherever you go. Uh, when I say the spirit of Halloween, no, I don't mean Satanism. I don't mean that at all. I mean the slight, the slight touch of the uncanny, the wonderful autumnal feeling of things, the memories of your own trick or treating, your your and your children, grandchildren, grandparents, and parents, all that kind of thing. Treasure it up, ladies and gentlemen. Drink that apple cider, eat that pumpkin pie. Oh, what I wouldn't do for a slice of pumpkin pie. 
something we don't get over here. Uh, and, you know, a friend of mine said to me not tonight, he said, you know, Charles, the thing about pumpkin pie is that it is so American. They have it in England, I think, but they don't have it here. And it is really an American thing, pumpkin pie. You guys have pumpkin spice lattes over there? Those we have, not in Austria, but I had them in the Netherlands uh, two weeks ago. I love those. You know I, I do love too. those. Oh, man. I love them, too. When I got off, the airport, I got off at the airport at Eindhoven, and there was the Starbucks, the big sign saying pumpkin latte. Guess what? But you know what they're not going to have? What? Eggnog. Okay. I mean, it's not Christmas. Eggnog so. latte. Yeah. It's... No, but I'm, just, I'm looking forward, you know. Yeah. See, part of being a writer uh, in a very, very competitive market these days is that you've got to be, you've got to keep one eye ahead. So I'm always looking at the next month, the next season, the next holiday. Driving around yesterday, I saw two different houses with Christmas lights already. People need Christmas, you know. Did you ever see Mame? Mame? Yeah, the, the musical. No. Well, there's a scene in it where she's broke, they're in terrible shape, and it's like two months before Christmas. And they've got no money, and they just... So they break out the Christmas decorations, <laughs> and they because we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Oh, right. I mean, people feel the need for it. It's been that kind of year. Yeah, and I don't think any of us are going to cling to the last few minutes of 2020 with anything re resembling regret. Nope. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, keep on sending in the Halloween questions. Um, next episode was the Halloween episode. Um, oh, golly Moses, do we have many Halloween questions? Yeah, we have a we have a really good amount. I think we're going to be doing the, a pre-show Halloween uh, episode and a, a full episode loaded with questions, I think, so far. All right, well, that's good. It also gives you an excuse, ladies and gentlemen, to become patrons, if you wish, in order to see the Halloween pre-show. Yeah. So I mentioned it. Uh, it it's, I, I told you, I think, last week, but maybe I didn't. I was joking with one of my classmates that the veil between the worlds is very thin this time of year. They said, where does that come from? And I said, John, it has become such a thing. It, it's, it's a cliche now. I looked it up on Google. You know how many examples they had? Uh, the veil how, between the worlds is very thin. Examples as in how many times it's been used on the internet? Yeah. Probably uh, yeah. 200,000. At least. <laughs> what? No, I mean what? It actually, it's about 25,000. 25,000? That, yeah. That's a lot. Is that one of the things? I like that where they chart the usage of a word. Historically. No, I, I didn't, have you I didn't ever see that. that? You no. know, when you look up complicated words, it's really cool where they uh, sometimes they'll chart it and you can see um, I do that for a lot of like old timey words and um, and you can see when it peaks and then it sort of dies off. It's really <laughs> cool. Really cool. Gosh. Well, I, I think, no, I think I, if you if you search a word and then you search like etymology or something like that and that's yeah.
And this isn't a word, it's a phrase. And it's, it's because the worlds is very thin this time of year. Now, mind you, they don't explain what the worlds are, but <laughs> it's, it's very evocative. It sounds mysterious without really telling you anything. Hmm. It's true. Okay. Uh, keep buying Ghost Book. If you haven't bought it yet, um, perfect. Buy it again. Buy it again. <laughs> uh, it's selling pretty well, actually. Uh, so I'm. Every, it's a very enjoyable book. Uh, I need to read it again, actually. Um, yeah, it's it's perfect for this time of year, the waning of the year. Oh, and I, obviously I've uh, got to plug my Kaiser Carl book. Of course. So. Consider it plugged. I haven't even seen the thing myself. Well, I mean, that's, again, as I've said before, you know, you've got top-tier publishers and then you've got Bush League publishers, you know. And so this is one of the, you know, this is one of those things when you when you small-time it, you know. With oh, I see. I yeah. see. Well, all I can tell you is that I, I'm – I'm very happy with the reactions I've gotten from it so far. Although nobody seems to have reviewed it on uh, on uh, Amazon. Um, I haven't checked, but I mean, it takes a while, Charles. I'm impatient. I want everybody and his brother to read it quickly and say, wow, this is the best book I've ever read in my whole life. Where has it been my whole life? Where have I been my whole life? And I think it's wonderful. And I wish, I wish... I wish I had written it, and not having written it, I wish it had been written about me. And if you write that on Tumblr House, you get $5 off any any book order. So, See? And if you, do it, if you do it right away, then you'll have done it sooner than anyone else. That's true. Those first book reviews, they're very important. I mean, that's the governing bit of information there, isn't it? It so, really is. Yeah. Okay, then, that'll do it for this episode. Um, All right. So remember, if it's Monday... It's off the menu. And the soul you save... Might very well just be your own. See you next time. Good night, all.